Romans chapter 1. We started this journey about six weeks ago, I think. And I began reading the first verse and didn't think I was going to make it past the word Paul. Um, but Miss Burma told me afterwards that she went home and studied through the rest of verse 1 and the three words or three phrases that Paul used to describe himself. And I'm very thankful for her heart and hunger for the word of God. And I would encourage you all to follow her example. I hope that you've been studying in Romans 1. And uh, we will continue to be here for some time. I think I'm finished with all the introductory work. Now we'll begin to look at the letter itself. But before we stand and read, I want you to notice something with me. And if you have your study guides, uh, now's a good time to pull that out. And it will be in the weeks ahead. And I'll try to encourage you with that and send you questions along the way for you to process. But Paul uses three words or three phrases in verse one to describe himself. He uses the phrase or, or the word bondservant of Christ Jesus. He uses the word apostle. And then he uses the phrase set apart for the gospel. And at the end of this section in verses six and seven, he'll turn around and use three words that describe us as believers. We are the called of Jesus Christ. We are beloved in verse seven. We are beloved of God. And then lastly, that third phrase, we are called as saints. And so I want us to consider that this morning as Paul does that on purpose. And he brings something to us in the middle that helps us understand why all this has happened. So if you have your Bibles with you, please stand with me at the reading of the word of the Lord, and then we will turn to him in prayer. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, the word of our Lord says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh and who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to Bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the Son for the one that you sent to die in our place, to suffer the wrath of God on our behalf, to pay the price that we could never pay. And through his work and his work alone to be adopted as the children of God, to be purchased out from sin and death, to be sanctified or set apart or made holy through the work of Jesus Christ. And Father, this morning we worship you in his name. And Father, we praise you for the spirit that you have filled us with, that you have sealed us with, and that you teach us with and guide us with and transform us with into the image of the glorious son. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would be so active among us this morning, that the spirit would 
take my words and make sense of them, empower them to penetrate all of our hearts, including my own, so that we might not only hear the word of God physically, but we would hear it from the depth of our soul and allow the power present in the word of God to transform who we are as the people of God. Lord, we do not want to be left as we are. We want to be changed into the image of your son even more so this morning. So, Father, help us to treasure this book in our lap, to realize what we have in it, and allow it to do its work. Lord, we praise you and we love you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. There are certain events that take place in our lives that really radically change who we are. They redefine us as people. And when I began to think about those particular events that take place in our lives, the first event that came to my mind that changed who I was took place on June 22nd, 1996, when I said, I do. I changed everything. I suddenly went from being a man, probably more like a boy, into being a husband. And I understood that, and I understand it even more today, that I was set apart from something, and I was set to someone. I was set apart from all other relationships, and all other affections, and all other pursuits, and I was set to one, my bride. And it redefined who I was. It redefined how I thought. It redefined my purposes. It redefined my passions. It redefined every single thing about me in one instance. I said I do, and the results continue on through today. There was another glorious event that happened on August 25th, 1999. I became a dad. And for those of you who have been blessed with that privilege, you know that that's a redefining moment in your life when the doctor hands you this child and you understand that it was the glorious work of God through you and your wife that has brought into this world a new life and you held that baby in your arms and you understood that everything's about to change. And it did. And that glorious moment repeated itself a couple of times. January 27th, 2003, the baby we were told that we would never have came into this world when little Abby was born and she was our joy, the unexpected joy of our lives. And then the mixed blessing, January 12, 2004, when Jonathan was born, dad laughed and mom wept. 11 months was not okay with mom, but it's been glorious for us ever since. And those are sort of moments that I'm talking about when something takes place in an instant and then the results of that moment carry on throughout life and they radically shape us and redefine us as people, as who we are. Now, there is something different about those particular moments because I chose those particular moments in a way. Certainly have to make the choice to be married and certainly have to make the choice to have children, even though that choice is not the deciding factor, right? We understand as Christians the sovereignty of God and we may choose to be married, but we have to wait on the sovereign provision of God if we're wise. And then one day we are married, recognizing that it is God who has provided us with a spouse. And certainly we may, may make the choice to have children, but again, as Christians, we understand the sovereignty of God. We have to wait for the Father, and certainly Paige and I did, and I know others of you who did, who it wasn't merely a choice, it was 
weeping and, and crying and begging and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and then God blessed. And so we understood those things. But now there's other things that happen that seemingly we have absolutely nothing to do with. There are things that we didn't choose. There are things that came upon us unexpectedly. There were things that we would declare without question it was solely the hand of God moving. And such a moment as that has taken place in our lives a number of times, but probably none other like the summer of 2010 when I was a husband, a father, owned my own business, a pharmacist, and God called. And that was a very unusual moment in our life. We were not seeking that. We were not choosing that. We were not trying to make that sort of thing happen. It happened rather unexpectedly because life was moving along quite well. We were blessed in every way. We answered to myself. I was my own boss. Company was, or the business was successful rather. And God said, no, we're not doing this anymore. And so we walked down the front and we announced to the church that God was calling us. And of course, the question was, to what? To which we responded, I have no idea. And we really didn't just sense the call of God so heavily and so seriously and yet knew nothing about what would take place. Brother Roger Obbs had the, had the wisdom to ask me, in what way have you been called? Is there something from the word of God? And I was so thankful that he turned. And I said, oh, without question, there has been a word that has not been able to escape my heart and mind for a great number of days now. And he said, what is that? And I told him it's Ezra 7:10, where the Bible says that Ezra had set his heart to study the word of God, to practice it and to teach it all of its statutes and ordinances. And now I say a great number of years later, without question, that was our call. And I look back on that and so thankful that God is accomplishing that. He has and he continues to do those sort of things. That is the burden and the passion of my heart and life. Now when that took place, it helped me understand a great number of times previous in which God moved. I wasn't doing it. I wasn't seeking it. He just radically interrupted my life. And one of those is just a few months before I graduated college when not in an audible weird sort of way, but within a tremendous compulsion that I can't put to words when God says, you are mine, which came in a significant time because I'm about to leave college and be my own, do what I want to do, go where I want to go, right? You have the opportunity to work and make money, make your own decisions. And it was in that moment where God said, no, you're mine. And I didn't understand that then, but I certainly understand it now. And it continued on because when I finished college, got a job and was about to start my very first week of work, God once again interrupted my life and said, no, we're not starting your new job next week. You're going to the mission field. And so I called my boss who had hired me and I asked for my very first week of work off. To which he responded, have you lost your mind? Why? And thankfully, he was a Christian. And I began to explain to him that I had just a tremendous urgency to go and spend a week in Biloxi, Mississippi, of all places. God was doing something else in my heart as well during that time to which he responded, son, it's only by the call of God that I would let you off your first week of work. And so I went. And there were other moments 
But all of those made much more sense, and they make much more sense today when I understand what God has done in my life and in the life of my family. Now, something like that took place in the life of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus one day that redefined everything about his life. He was on his way to have Christians arrested, tried, and ultimately condemned for their faith in Christ. And then Paul met Christ and everything was instantly changed in a moment. His life was redefined in a moment. Before Christ, he would use words like he does in Philippians 3 to describe himself. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he would say. As to the law of Pharisee, he was a persecutor of the church in regard to his zeal. And in regard to the righteousness which he thought was found in the law, he considered himself blameless. But after meeting the Lord Jesus... These are the words that we find in Romans 1 that the Paul, Apostle Paul uses to describe himself. They are slave and apostle and set apart. Doulos, apostolos, and aphoros menos. Slave, apostle, set apart. Before and after, there, there is no comparison. You can't even draw a line in between the words he used to use and the words that he uses now. And so this morning, I want us to look and begin by looking at these three words that the Apostle Paul uses to describe himself as a Christian. And the first is this word doulos. Now, if you have the King James or the ESV, it's just translated servant, which is an interesting way to introduce yourself to Rome. And since Rome had slaves abounding everywhere, every wealthy person had slaves working for them. And so Paul writes this letter, never having met the church at Rome, and he introduces himself simply as a slave. Now, this is a hotbed word, is it not? It's a word that most commentators want to kind of soften the blow with today. And so some of the translators translated the word servant and they made it almost as, as a term of honor or a term of respect. And so we've got to decide, how does Paul want us to see this word? Does he want us to see him describing himself as someone who is respected and honored or someone who is in subjection or, or even humiliation? Now, when you look at the Old Testament word, compare it with the New Testament word, it's just a simple matter of translating from the Hebrew to the Greek. The, the Hebrew word is eved, sort of like we used to have Evan around here, a lovely young lady that married some old boy and moved off toward Auburn. Don't know who he was. But it's the same word as that, except it ends with a D, eved. And it's translated in the scriptures, either servant or slave. And we find it in places of tremendous honor. Because there was a time in Genesis 26 where the Lord is speaking to Isaac and he says, I want to talk to you about your dad for just a minute. And Isaac's dad was who? Abraham. And this is what the Lord says about Abraham. He says, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. I will bless you. I will multiply your descendants for the sake of my Aved or my servant, Abraham. Now, that'd be something as a son. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, calls your dad his personal servant. That is certainly an honorable term. And that's not the only place that the Lord uses that. In Joshua 1, he calls Moses my servant. At the end of Joshua, he calls Joshua his servant. In Isaiah 20, he refers to Isaiah the prophet as my servant. And then we find this in Amos 3, verse 7. It says, Surely... 
The Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. And then we understand that all the Old Testament prophets that wrote all the Old Testament letters were the personal servants of God. And certainly that is a title of of tremendous honor and tremendous respect, or it should have been. But we all know what they did to the servants of the Lord in the Old Testament, don't we? They persecuted them and they they put them to death. In fact, the Lord speaking in in Luke 11 and verse, verse 47 says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who murdered them or who killed them. It was a term of respect, except they didn't respect them, nor did they respect the God who had created them. And so they put all the prophets to death. It was unrealized honor. See, to respect the servant, you have to respect the one that they serve. Now, in a perfect world where everyone respects and and endears and loves and honors God and worships God for who he is, the God of the Bible and not the God that they created, certainly anyone who would be a servant of the Lord should be held in high regard and high honor. Certainly they serve a worthy king. And if you think about that, how we would respond. Because if we were in England and we had great respect for the queen or the king of England and we walked in and said, I'm the personal servant of the queen of England. And you were respectable Englishmen and English women. You would do everything to meet my needs because you would think, well, if I could honor the servant of the queen, certainly I would be honoring the queen herself and it might benefit us in the future. That's the idea, Right. But the servants of the Lord have never been treated in such a way. They weren't honored and respected to gain the favor of God. They were tortured and killed, as I said. So that's the problem with just treating this as a term of honor, a term of respect. Because number one, Paul says that he's an apostolos, I mean, he's a doulos rather. He's a, he's a slave. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. And we all know how the world felt about Christ Jesus. He's a hated king. So if I roll up in here one day and say, I'm the personal servant of, and I mention a name that everyone despises and hates, and someone actually does come to mind right now, I would not be very respected. I would not be heard. I would be dismissed. You would turn a cold shoulder to me and wouldn't offer me anything, not even the time of day. So when Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, he's understanding that there's only a particular group of people that are going to appreciate that. Only those who have faith in Christ and who worship Christ as the king. But not only that, he uses horrible words because if he's going to use the word doulos in the context of Rome, well, they're slaves. They're just common slaves. And that's why if you have the NASB, it's translated the word bondservant, and I think that's a better translation. Paul understood himself as a bondservant. As a slave, as someone who does not have personal rights and personal privileges, as someone who is owned by a master. And certainly Paul was owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the Lord's personal possession. And so Paul understood his life in that particular way. In fact, if you'll notice the word order, and it's very interesting. Look at verse one, Paul, a bondservant of, and notice he says Christ first, Christ Jesus And then as you read on through Romans, if you'll notice at the end of verse four, he says, Jesus Christ. And he goes on that way. Verse six, 
You are the called of Jesus Christ. Verse seven, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord. Jesus Christ. Verse eight, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. You get, you get what's going on here. So why did he start with Christ Jesus? Why did he say, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus? Because Christ is the term that's recognized as the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's King. See, Paul's being very particular with his words. I'm a slave of the King. Not the personal name of Jesus, not the fleshly title of our Lord Jesus, but rather the anointed title, the messianic title, the kingly title. I'm a bondservant of a king. And he wanted to be recognized that way. He had been purchased with a great price. And while I'm here with that thought, let me remind you of 1 Corinthians 6. Because what does Paul do? He commands us to flee immorality and to pursue holiness based on what truth? Based on the truth that you have been purchased with a price, you're not your own. Glorify God with your body. Your physical body does not belong to you. You cannot act about an immorality because you don't possess your own physical body anymore. You see, this word doulos has great import for us if we would just think about it. In fact, I've told you on Wednesday night, if you'll just sit on bondservant of Christ Jesus, it will radically reshape your life. You're not your own. That free will that you love as an American is out the window. It's not your will. It's his will be done. And your greatest concern in life is to seek the will of the Lord, not your appetite or your desire. So should we consider ourselves to be slaves of Christ? You should if you're wise. You should if you're wise. But that should not concern us at all. And here's why. Because the Lord says in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is what? Easy. And my burden is light. That's your master. That's your owner. That's your slave owner. He is a God. He is a master who is full of compassion and grace. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's the one who owns you. So give yourself freely to him as his bondservant and entrust the entirety of your life to him. And begin to see and understand your life in terms of being the bondservant of Christ. Second word that Paul comes to is the word apostolos or apostle. It says that he is called Apostle, that's all that's in the original text. We have called as an apostle to help us to understand it. But in its technical sense, it was reserved for those men who had been chosen by the Lord himself to deliver his message in his name. We really see this in Luke 6 when we walk through the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 6 verse 13. The Lord called all of his disciples to himself. The Bible says he chose 12 of them and he named them apostles. Is a very specific title, very particular title, and it was given solely by the Lord. And it described them as necessary that they had seen the resurrected Lord. Not only did they have to see the physical embodiment of the Lord when, he, when the God became flesh, but they also had to see the Lord after he was raised from the dead. Not only that, they had to have firsthand knowledge of the things that he had done. 
They had to see with their own eyes when the Lord raised the dead. They had to see with their own eyes when the Lord would heal the blind and the lame. They had to see those things with their own eyes. And not only that, they had to have heard with their own ears the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if they fit that bill, if they had seen the resurrected Lord, they had firsthand knowledge of the things that he'd done and they taught, then they met their credentials if the Lord called them into this apostleship. And why was it so particular? Because the message that these men would proclaim would be the very reason that they would be put to death. And so if you're going to be put to death for what you're going to proclaim, do you want firsthand knowledge of that? Do you want to die based on some secondhand story? Or is it better for you that you die based on some firsthand story that you experienced yourself? Now, these men were stoned and these men were sawn in two and these men were burned to death and they were faithful to the end because God had sought in such a way as to give them firsthand knowledge of everything that they experienced. You can't deny what you saw. I can't deny what I heard. I can't deny the fact that on the road one day, the resurrected Christ appeared to me. I can't deny that. You'll, go ha- you'll have to go ahead and put me to death because I have firsthand knowledge of these things. If you remember, I know we're in Romans. Put your hand there and walk back with me to Luke chapter 1 and let me show you this. Luke chapter 1 verse 1. Let me show you someone who is not an apostle. Not in a technical sense. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. You see that? Luke's not an apostle. He's writing what he's heard. He's an historian. And he did the legwork to compile an account of all that Jesus did and taught. And so when we get to Acts 1, he writes to Theophilus. He says, hey, in my first letter, I wrote everything that Jesus did and taught for you. But that's very different from the apostles. So go back with me and run to 1 John chapter 1 and listen to how John begins his account as he writes. 1 John chapter 1 verse 1. These are the words of the apostle. John writes in first one, chapter one, first John, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested. We have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the father and is manifested to us. What we've seen, what we've heard, we proclaim to you. See, that's what an apostle does. And just by reading that, you're already in just secondhand knowledge. Your life depends upon what the apostles wrote because they wrote from firsthand experience. And so your life is very certain in Christ. But as you go back to Romans 1, chapter 1, Paul met the credentials in a very unique way. He saw the resurrected Lord on the way to Damascus. And he writes in Galatians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle not sent from men, 
nor through the agency of man, but sent through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul saw the resurrected Lord on the road and Paul heard from the Lord and Paul was taught from the Lord. And so Paul wrote directly from the Lord. In fact, if you look back at Romans 1.1, it says called apostle, kletos, apostolos. It's an adjective. It's a verb as well. It's something God has done. And I want you to understand that he was called apostle. It's not Paul. Would you like to be an apostle for me? Well, I don't know, Lord. Let me pray about it a while. No, it was not like that. It was Kletos Apostolos, called apostle. God appointed him apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's going to be very important when we get down to the words that describe you. It's just not something that Paul chose for himself. Paul was on his way to put Christians to death when Christ appeared and said, you are my apostle. It was certainly a complete red redirection of his entire life. Now, I said bondservant applies to you. Does apostles apply to you? Are you apostles? Certainly not. Those were specific men in a specific time for a specific purpose. But yet the apostles have tremendous importance for us. And I'll take you back to what I said earlier. We recognize apostolic authority because we recognize the word of God. We recognize that this book in your lap was written by God from beginning to end, including the punctuation in every part of it. But it was written through the hands of the apostles primarily as they held the pen and God guided the hand. And so they wrote. And I bring this up to you because there are. Now, I mentioned apostolic authority years ago in this church, and somebody confronted me right after. What's this business about apostolic authority, they said. I was like, okay, here we go. No one likes authority, do they? You mentioned the word authority, and the hair stands up on the back of your neck. You're an American. Don't talk to me about authority. In fact, we brought that autonomy into the Baptist church. Don't tell me what to do. I'm a Southern Baptist. We do what we want to do. Yeah, not really. Not if we're faithful. Because we understand apostolic authority. I could take you if we had time and I want to 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy where Paul describes the church, who we're supposed to be, who's supposed to do what, how we're supposed to act. And we recognize that as apostolic authority. In fact, I just met somebody yesterday, professed to be Christ or Christian rather, and completely denied the teachings that we find in 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter. I mean, 1 Timothy. And I'm like... Why would you do that? I'm a Christian. I just deny the word of God. That's very bizarre to me. In fact, I can't even draw a line between those two. It causes me within my heart to deny even what you said to begin with. Why would you be a Christian and deny apostolic authority in the word of God? It makes utterly no sense to me. So apostles do have tremendous import for us. We read their word and we repent from what we think and we obey what they say because what they wrote is the word of God. Last word Paul uses, it's my, it's my favorite actually, aphorismenos or aphorismenos rather, set apart for the gospel of God. This is a huge word. This is a compound word. It's a beautiful word. Y'all know me. I like words. It's in the perfect tense. It's something that God had, had done and the results continue forward. In other words, Paul had been set apart. 
in a perfect way by God on a perfect or on a particular day. And the results continued forever. Paul had said it been set apart from something and he was set apart to someone. He was set apart from his life as a Pharisee. He was set apart from the world and he was set apart to God. Much like marriage that I described at the beginning. If you've been married, you've been set apart away from everyone else and singularly and solely to one in the relationship with them. And so when Paul uses this word in the perfect tense, he understood that one day God set him apart for the gospel of God. And by the way, let me add this as well. It's in the middle voice. English doesn't have middle. We have active and passive. You did it or someone did it to you. But in the middle voice, it's beautiful. The Greek middle, it's this. God set the apostle Paul apart for himself. God set Paul apart for his own purposes. And I hate to use the analogy, but it's the one that comes to mind when you go out and pick out a puppy. Go to a kennel or whatever. You find the one that your heart is drawn to. Yes, puppy. And you go, I want this for myself. And you take it to yourself and you use it for your own purposes. It's your pet. Some of y'all, it lives in the home with you. Others, it does functions for you that you want it to do like Brad. It's something you chose for yourself to do for yourself. So it's in this middle voice that Paul was set apart. God is like, this one will be mine for my own purposes. He is set apart for me. Now, Paul was set apart for the gospel. In fact, in Galatians 1.15, Paul would write this. When God who set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Paul understood so many years later that before he was ever born, God set him apart as his own. Now, are you set apart in that instance? What do you think? Certainly not set apart as apostles. Are you set apart for the gospel of God? Well, certainly as individuals, we are set apart for the service of God. Let me remind you about Ephesians 2.10 where it says, We are God's workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In other words, it's as if in the text, God had the work he wanted to do and he designed the tool in which to do the work. That's the picture that's painted for us in Ephesians 2.10. I know what I want to do in and through my gospel. And there's a particular purpose within that gospel. And I'm going to prepare my tool for such a purpose as that. And then God raises us up and works us in such a way in order to accomplish his will. Right. When I think about this, how did how did the Lord prepare the Apostle Paul to write the book of Romans, which is almost singularly about the righteousness that comes to us through faith alone. How do you prepare a man for that? Well, you raise him up as a Pharisee who's absolutely convinced that he can obtain righteousness on his own through the law. So he spends the overwhelming majority of his life pursuing a righteousness through the law. And when he comes to the end of himself and he meets Jesus, he realizes all of his efforts are absolutely worthless in Philippians 3. And he could not obtain what he spent his whole life pursuing. And then he sees the righteousness through Christ. 
And then God makes him an apostle and he proclaims the righteousness which is based on faith. See, you think all that stuff prior to Jesus could never be used, but you don't understand that you're a tool in the hands of the Lord and every bit of your life has prepared you to serve God and his gospel in his particular way. But not only are we set apart for service, we're also set apart for worship. Paul's going to take, take us to Romans 12, 1, where he'll say this. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is acceptable to God. You've been set apart for worship. Isn't it, isn't it forgive me, foolish for how flippant we are with church? God redeemed you. He plucked you up from the dead. He breathed into you the newness of life through Christ. And He set you apart to worship Him. How can we not give ourselves to that every single day? How can we not awake in the morning and fall on our knees like I so often fail to do? But how can we not awake and fall on our knees and worship to God? How can we not fall asleep worshiping God? How can we not reserve time to meet corporately for the worship of God? You've been set apart for that. And certainly the church as a whole has been set apart. Listen to what God says to the nation of Israel in Leviticus 20. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart from all the peoples to be mine. In other words, God says, I chose Israel out of all the other peoples on the planet. They're mine. They're my possession. But now we understand that through the church, we realize that in even a greater sense. I have chosen you out from all the other peoples to be mine, to serve me, to worship me. Even as the church, what does he tell us in Matthew 28? Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything. Why do we do that? Because we've been set apart for that. And the church that fails to proclaim the gospel to the nations has failed in one of the main reasons that they've been set apart and chosen as a people. We've been set apart for purpose individually. We've been set apart for the purposes of God collectively as a church. Now let me move on quickly. I know I've got to get to us. Look down in verse 6. Verse 6 says, Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Let's look at this first one. The called of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. It's the same word that Paul used when he wrote called as an apostle. It's something God has done. It's not something you have done. It's God through all of his grace called you to himself. That's why I love why the NASB puts in the word, the called. It's not the general call. Certainly the general call comes out. I generally call you very often to repent and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the general call. But that's not the call that he's speaking about here. This is the effectual call. And for all of those who have heard the gospel and believe, you are considered by God to be the called. The kletos, right? Yesu Christu. You are the called of Christ. In fact, Paul will say about this about you in Romans 8. Later on, he'll say, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These he predestined, he called. 
And those whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. All of these are in a, almost a past tense perspective. And you're like, wait a minute, I haven't been glorified. Oh, in the mind of God, you, you have. Why? Because you've been justified. How was I justified? Because you were called. Why were you called? Because he predestined you. Why did he predestine you? Because he foreknew you. Let's walk back through the text. Paul, uh, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. It's by his doing. It's not by your doing. What about the decision for Christ? Certainly you made that choice for Christ. I won't deny that. But you do understand when Paul got to this place in his life, he understood that I'm here because of what God has done and not me. And as you mature in your relationship with Christ, you come to the same place. And in fact, if you ever find yourself in heaven, you'll ask the same question that we'll all be asking. How in the world did I get here? Why do I get to experience the favor of God? Why do I enjoy the presence of God? And we'll understand. Glory be to God. It's by your work and your work alone that we have been brought into relationship with you. Not only are you the called of Christ, notice the next phrase, verse 7, to all who are beloved of God. Agape, or if you like, agape. This is the love of God. This is the in spite of, the sacrificial, the selfless love of God. And it is reserved for all those who have faith in Christ. In fact, it's the same love that God, that God uh, addresses His Son with. Luke 3, listen to these words at the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in bodily form like a dove. A voice came out of heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. It's that word. So in the way that the Father addresses the Son is the same way that the Father addresses His children, His people. Man, that ought to strike a chord in your heart. It's the term that the New Testament writers, Paul, Peter, John, Jude, all of them used in regard to us. If you remember when we started Jude, this is how the letter begins. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And this is, and I wish I had more time to, to spend on this word, but I pray that you give some thought to this word. You are the beloved. Now there's one person in my life that I refer to in that way, and that is my wife. I refer to that, I got all kinds of nicknames for all my family and kids, and I know I drive them crazy, but sometimes I refer to Paige as my beloved, and she's the only one. I love all of y'all, but I have a unique love for her. It's not like I love you. Especially Landon, right? <laughs> He's laughing. It's a unique love. It's a treasuring kind of love. There's affection to it, yes, but man, there's a treasure in my heart for my bride like for no one else in my life. She is my beloved. And certainly for God so loved the world, there is that love. There is the, if you will, general love. And I hate to use the word general. I don't want to diminish it. There's a great love that God has for the world. But you do understand when you come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you are marked off as his beloved. You are treasured. You are special. You are different. You belong to him. 
That's why when we read the Gospel of John, the word love is used once in John 3, 16, before you get to John 13, because in John 13, he begins to speak to his disciples. And when he begins to speak to his disciples, he uses love like crazy because it's a unique kind of love. Lastly, notice with me, called saints, Claytois Agios, or Agios, actually. Claytois Agios. It's the reality of those who are in Christ. We are saints. Now, let me say something. You're probably at first going to shake your head going, that can't be true. But it is true. You do realize you're just as much a saint as the Apostle Paul. You get a hold of that. How? Well, because it's what God does. It's not what you do. There's no qualifications for a saint. Oh, the Catholic Church has made several, but there's none. If you're born again, you're a saint. And you're just as much as a saint as any saint before you. There are no qualifications. There is no good behavior. There is not the guy who shares his faith once a week or the guy who reads his Bible every day. And there's so much more of a saint. No, you're a saint because of what Christ has done. And in fact, this is what Paul has done that I think we miss in the text. I don't think it should say called saints. I think it should say called holy because it's the same word. And what does holy mean, by the way? Set apart. So in other words, Paul begins this thought with being set apart to the gospel of God. And then he talks to you and says, oh, wait, you've been set apart. You've been made holy. You've been set apart by the gospel of God. We are called the called, if you will, of Jesus Christ. We are the beloved of God and we are the saints of God. Now, let me ask you, and I know by now you can answer the question and we'll be done. What has caused all of this change in the life of the Apostle Paul and in the life of the saint? What has done that? Well, Paul begins with describing himself and he ends with describing us. And what lies in the middle? It is the gospel of God. And the gospel of God has done everything that we've been talking about this morning. It's through the gospel that we have been called to God through Christ. You don't get there through any other means than the proclamation of the gospel. You don't sit under a tree and an apple falls off and strikes you on the head and you understand the gospel. It's through the proclamation of the gospel that you've been kletos to Christ. It's also through the gospel that we've been reconciled to God. And now we're defined as the beloved of God. How in the world did you get to be defined as the beloved? Through the gospel. Because it was through the gospel that Christ died on your behalf and you were adopted into the family of God. And then lastly, how did you get to be made holy? It's through the gospel that the Holy One died in your place. And now His holiness has become your holiness. And you've been made holy. You see, as glorious as it is, as the message of life, the gospel is so much more. The gospel is the message of God that not only changed us in a particular day, but it, it continues to help us realize that we've been changed radically. Now, let me ask you something that, that puzzles me, and I know I often come back to this thought. How in the world do people hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, and yet can use the exact same set of words to describe themselves before and after? coming to faith in the gospel. How does that work? I can't find that in the text at all. 
All the only thing that I can find in the text is this this presentation of the gospel is this living and active message that manifests itself by changing who we are. And I encourage you this morning, if you profess faith in Christ, I want to ask you, tell me, what set of words do you use now since you've put your faith in the gospel message? Is it a different set of words? Because if you're using the same words, please examine your life. You might have got puffed up one day in emotionalism and ran down an altar and made some sort of decision, but you were not born again. And then for those of you who do not profess faith in Christ, it's a simple message. God saves all those who call to Him through Christ. Come to God. Submit your life to Him. Let Him be your slave owner. Because let me tell you, the way of the slave of Christ is the blessed way. For He is a precious master and owner. Let's pray.